Well, it is a good morning, and I'm really thankful that we're able to be here together. I know that uh, just from the sound of it, there's a lot of people not feeling too well, and <laughs> I'm one of those, and there's a perfect example of it right there. Uh, I think there's uh, there's just a lot going on uh, around here. I think some of it's weather. I think some of it's just, I don't know, it's, it's that season, I guess. I don't know if we're ever not in a season of sickness, though, are we? I mean, you could say that during the springtime, oh, because there's pollen. You can say it during the summertime because of some other thing out there, you know, pollen, yeah. Uh, you can say it during the fall because, oh, change of season, it's getting a little colder and pollen still. And then the wintertime, it's just like, I don't know, it's not pollen, I guess, but it's something out there in, in the air. And so maybe that's what it is. It's, it's the change in weather. It just keeps, keeps going cold again. Uh, Robin says he thinks that this is probably the coldest it's going to be for a while. It's probably not going to get cold again. We'll see. I don't know. It's it's the South, and we never can tell what's going to happen. I want to talk about First John chapter two this morning, and that is primarily where we're going to be. First John chapter two, and we're mainly going to just be in the first six verses, uh, exactly what Robin read to start with. I want to go ahead and reread that in just a second, but just to I guess set the stage a little bit. In First John, we have John, who is the same writer as the Gospel of John who we also know is one of the original 12 apostles, the brother of James who was killed early on in the book of Acts as we've studied. So we have this one, and he seems to be really one of the last originals, right? He's one of the last ones left. He's seen it all. And what we have here in this letter is we have a plea from John. And this plea is is a little bit different than some some other writings for instance, we were studying Hebrews in our Wednesday night study. The, the letter to the Hebrews is a plea to don't go back to your former way, to Judaism and other things like that. We have some writings like that. I, I see John writing First John as a plea to stay in Christ, stay in fellowship with God, stay in fellowship with the teaching of the apostles. And if you look at the first several verses, that's kind of what he says. But then the next part about that is, and it's not just about your, the doctrine that you accept, it's your way of life that actually dictates whether or not you are in fellowship and keeping in step with the apostles and therefore with God. In chapter 2, though, he kind of he doesn't switch, but he, he gets a little bit deeper with some things. And so that's what I want to look at. It's just the first six verses of 1 John chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. John says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to talk about Jesus Christ being our advocate today. And we'll get into what that word actually means and some other things in the the scriptures that might reference that same word. But first, I just want to ask this question, what can we do with our sins? Like, what can we do with our sins? Just think about that. What are the options that pop in your head? Like, okay, with my sin, this is what I could do with it. It's interesting, if you go back to the previous few verses in 1 John chapter 1, 
He actually says, beginning of verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So really this context is all about what are we going to do with the sin? You can't do the first, two, or the, the first and last thing he mentions there. Like you can't say, I don't have sin. Like that's not a problem I have. Well, you're, you're a liar if you say that. And, and that sounds kind of harsh, but that's just exactly what John says. You have no truth within yourself. You're kidding. You're lying to yourself, really. Then the last one is, you can't say that you've never sinned, like sin has never been a problem for you. That's just not something that you have to deal with. Because if you do that, then you're making God a liar now. Not only are you lying to yourself, but you're making God a liar. It's that middle thing that we can do. We can confess our sins. We can own up to those sins. We can hold fast to, to the person that we have confessed, which is Jesus Christ. But so this whole thing is like, what are we going to do with our sin? So he actually says in verse one that I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Well, but sin is already a problem. But he, he just said that, right? Like sin is a problem they have had and it will be a problem they will have. If you say you have no sin, if you say that you do not sin, excuse me, then you are a liar. You deceive yourselves. But that doesn't mean that he's not hoping that they will not sin. His hope is that you will not sin anymore. By the way, this isn't the only thing he says, like, this is why I'm writing. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He says about four or five different things of why he's writing. This is just one of them. And they're probably all connected in a great way that someone could make a great lesson with at some point. But here, he just says, I'm writing these things so you do not sin. So he's writing so they don't sin, but he understands that they will. So much of this letter is about fellowship with God. So the idea that he doesn't want them to sin makes sense. Because what separates us from God and stops us from having fellowship with him is sin. That is what has hindered people from being in fellowship with God from the very beginning. They were in fellowship with him in the garden, and then there was sin, and then they were out of fellowship for a period of time. And God made sure that they understood that there was a breakdown in that fellowship that they could see, that they could understand, that doesn't mean that they weren't back in fellowship with him once they had owned up to their sin. But God wanted it to be very clear that there is a separation now. And I wonder if we felt that separation or saw that separation today from God, not just like among other Christians and within the church, which I think is a good way God uses for us to see that separation from God because of our sin. But if we saw it in a very clear way the way Adam and Eve did, I wonder if it would cause us to not want to sin anymore. I, would, I wonder if it would make us feel and really understand this breakdown of this fellowship of this relationship. So he talks about Jesus being manifested and seen in the first three <laughs> verses. And he says, and John says, that's who we've proclaimed. And he said, all this has happened. Like the gospel has come. Jesus came and he and others have uh, proclaimed Christ for what purpose? Well, he says in verse three is that people can have fellowship with God and those that were sent out by Jesus. But he says in verse 6 that how we live our lives affects this fellowship. So our sin separates us. But here John focuses on a walk or a type of life that is actually going to separate us. He says that we are we walk in darkness, and in that way we're not following God. And that is the breakdown of our fellowship with him. So his desire is that you don't sin. But did you notice also in verse 1 that he includes himself in some of this? He says, we have an advocate. John himself 
needs this advocate. John himself is part of this whole thing of like, yeah, we have sin. Sin is a problem for us. Do you ever read the scriptures and you see issues and problems and things like that and you just really, all that your focus is on other people? Not even John, the apostle, does that. I mean, he will say things that are problems for other people, but with things that are also problems for him, he realizes that he's part of that group that is dealing with that. So let's take a note from John. Maybe that's just a, one thing for us to keep in mind. So we do sin, but we need to find out what to do with that sin. So what I want to do is I want to go through three really quick options of what we can't do with our sins, okay? Before we say what, what we can do, because we've established sin's a problem. We don't want to sin. John doesn't want these Christians to sin. I would imagine that he would write this to us today and say, I'm writing these things so you do not sin. And we realize the gravity of that because it breaks down our fellowship with God. So what can we do? Let's talk about three things we can't do first. First thing we can't do with our sin is just never sin again. I mean, you, you could do that. You could try to do that at least. That's obviously the goal moving forward. That's what John says. Don't sin ever again. What does that do with your past sins, though? It doesn't solve anything. If you don't sin from now until the day that you die or Christ comes back, you still have the sin from previous, right? So that, that doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve anything if we don't sin tomorrow and make sure that we keep on making ourselves a covenant with God that we never sin tomorrow. And then we keep doing that day after day after day and, and we accomplish that. That does nothing from what we did yesterday and the days previous. Nothing changes from our sins in the past. The second thing we can't do is we can't ignore our sin or act like it doesn't matter. Sin is real, and it's something that we have done. And he says here that that's why Jesus has come, not only for us, but for the world. So people who act like, we know sin is bad, and we know sin is wrong, and that's why Christ came, but I don't have to worry with my sin because I have Christ. Everything that they've said previously makes it very clear that you should worry about your sin. <laughs> and here we don't see that that's the solution. Just don't worry about it, ignore it. It's something each of us has done without question. Unless we deny that there is an objective truth from God. If we deny that there is objective truth from God, then we can say, oh, sin doesn't matter. But for anyone that says that there is truth and that God has delivered that truth, and that in a perfect way God has delivered that truth through Christ, then we have to say that sin matters. And it is funny how many people that will claim they're following Christ will act like sin just does not matter. It's one thing to take comfort in the fact that we have, uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, that we have the blood of Christ that covers us. It's another thing totally different to act like our sin doesn't matter. The third thing we can't do is we can't ask for somebody else to help us with our sin. We can't ask somebody else for take it on, to take it on for us. And I think the reason is because what makes them able to take on our sin? Who qualifies them to take on our sin? Well, nobody does. Because what do they have that they have to deal with? Sin. Their own sin, yeah. Like if I ask Tim, I say, Tim, will you help me with my, with my sin? He says, sure, I'll pray for you. No, 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 I want you to take it on. Will you do that for me? And he's like, well, I need someone to take on my sin. And I'm like, okay, well, you can find somebody else. You know what's going to happen is eventually it's going to come right back around to me. So we've all taken on our sin, and we just can't do that because we have to do something with our own sin. It makes it very clear. God makes it very clear. We stand before God about what we have done. 
we give an account for the deeds we have committed in the body. So we, that's not an option either, which I think really is something we should think about when we talk to other religious people, that they, they should not be relying on someone else to solve their sin problem. What we really see here is that Jesus is the only answer for that. He's the only one that can take that on. So I want to give a silly example of how this doesn't work to pass something off to somebody else and how what winds up happening is it comes right back to you. And sometimes both of you get in trouble. When I was in kindergarten, I remember there was a time for, like, there was nap time. And during nap time, I mean, who doesn't enjoy nap time? Who doesn't, you know, think back fondly on those days? And I guess as the older you get, you get to experience that again, right? Um, so I'm not calling anyone out with that, but some of you probably know what I'm talking about. I remember there was a time where during that time you had to have all the toys, everything put away. Like you couldn't have anything out. I remember one of my friends, or I'll put friends in quotes, he had kept some like Play-Doh and he put it underneath the carpet, okay, like the rug, I should say. And the whole plan that he had was during that time, I'm going to lay down right here and I'm going to reach underneath the rug and I'm going to still have that Play-Doh to play with. So I remember that I didn't know about that plan. And at some point he just like, put some like on my face, like on my, on my head. And it made me start laughing. And then the teacher came over. I was like, Blake, what are you laughing about? You're, you're, you know, you're waking everybody up. And I was like, I was just giggling uncontrollably, I guess. But then the other thing was, like, where'd you get the Play-Doh? And I was like, well, he, he did it, you know, because it was true. We know what happened. We both got in trouble. It doesn't work. You try to pass something off to somebody else, innocently or not. It doesn't work that way. And I think we need to understand when it comes to our sin, if I want to try to pass something off to anybody else, they're right there saying, what about your stuff? You know, now, was it my fault that the Play-Doh was left out? And, was, and no, but you know what? It was on me when she saw me. When God looks at us, what does he see? Not only does he see maybe the sin that we've committed, but he's also seen how we have influenced other people and their sin. So just think about that. So we have Jesus, though. So that brings us to, to, verse, uh, to the end of verse 1 and then for verse 2. He says, we have an advocate. So what do we do with our sin? We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why do we need this advocate? Why do we need this propitiation for our sins? Well, I think that what we need to see is this, this one attribute that he gives to Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. What qualifies Jesus to be this advocate, to be this go-between to be this person that, that takes on our sin, well, he's the righteous one. See, he is capable of satisfying God's demands for sin so that we can be made right. But also, if you go back to the first three verses from chapter 1, he is from the Father and from the beginning. So he's always been in fellowship with God. So if we're going to rely on anybody to help this fellowship issue, this relationship issue with, with us and God, it's going to be the one that has always been in this relationship with God, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the son. He is the only one that has always been in this perfect relationship with God. So we don't rely on anybody else. You don't rely on me. You don't rely on your best friend, your parents. You don't rely on any other religious person. You rely on Christ and him only. So he's our advocate, which is needed because we have an accuser that is ever present. We have the devil that is constantly accusing us before the Lord. So Jesus is called alongside us to plead on our behalf like a defense attorney. It's actually the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospel of John to describe the Holy Spirit as his comforter. There is a difference, though. And the difference is that there, I think there's two instances where instead of it 
just being this comforter where there's this support and peace that is offered through this advocate. Then in two instances, I think it's actually John 14, if I remember correctly, and then here in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is making it clear that we need this advocate, this mediator, this comforter, because of something specific, because of our sin. So imagine, imagine just, if you can, standing before a judge. I mean, you, you know, and, and the way I understand it kind of works, unless it's like a huge court case, is there's just a line of people. Or there's just basically people sitting out there. They're, they're just waiting to go and stand before the judge. Imagine you know exactly what the charges are. And you know you're guilty. And you're sitting there waiting your turn. And then the next name is called. And then the next one, you just kind of, maybe you stay in your seat or maybe you just kind of slide closer because you, know you know you're coming up. And the, and the thought you have in the back of your mind is, is anybody going to stand up there with me? Like, is anybody going to kind of help me out here? Because you know that is an option, that, that there can be a, an attorney that shows up and, and says, hold on, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you. I'll plead your case. But you just don't know. You just don't know if he's going to stand up there. You don't know if he's going to show up. You keep looking at the clock and wondering, like, I thought he was going to be here by now. Wouldn't that be terrifying? Especially if you, you were guilty of the charges. I think it's a beautiful thing that we don't have to keep looking at the clock wondering if we're going to have Jesus to stand up there with us. That he's our advocate. That he's the one that stands before us as we stand before God. And not only does he make peace because of some sort of wrathful anger God has um, because of sin. That's not, that's not really the idea here as much as it is just it's about right and wrong. It's about what have you done and how, are you gonna, how is this peace, how is this, this wall of separation going to be broken down so that you can continue to have this relationship, this fellowship with God. Well, only Jesus can do that because he's the righteous. So the second thing I want us to focus on is that we can know and have confidence that he is our advocate. And that's something that we can know, that we can, we can believe in, we can put our hope and trust in. We don't have to wonder if we have him as our advocate. I, I didn't really focus on the propitiation. Let me talk about that just for a second. So he is the propitiation for our sins. When we think about what we will do with our sins, we might think that it's possible for us to just do some works and to like, so the balance, you know, you put it on the scale and like, okay, I've done enough good. Now, along the while, I've still kind of done a little bit evil, but I, I've really tried to do more good. So somehow there, it's going to balance out. I don't think God's scales work the way our scales do. And that's why it takes the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation. He is the one that covers us. His blood was shed not only for each and every one of us, but in a grander way for the whole world. So that means that we should take that as a very personally, but also we should be so thankful that that opportunity to have his blood cover us is for everybody. It's not just for a select group. It's not just for one time. I mean, it happened for one time, but it's not just for one generation that he died. It's for all time. All right. So now let's, let's go on to, the, to saying what we can know and what we can have, how we can have confidence that he is our advocate. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So we know, we know Jesus or have come to know Jesus 
if we keep his commandments. It's contingent. It's, it's something that we have to prove out. It's something that we have to show. Well, that's kind of tough because I can say I know somebody, and how can I prove I know them? Well, maybe if someone says, oh, do you know Don? And, and I say, oh, yeah, I know Don. So well, tell me about him. So I would just describe him say, okay, I guess you know Don. But then maybe there's someone else that says, oh, but do you really know Don? And I'm like, so then I'm like, well, what do you know about Don? And then, you know, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what can I say that, that maybe they also know that kind of justifies, or not justifies, but pacifies their request. What God says here, or what John says here, is that what will make it clear that we know Jesus isn't if we can just describe him, isn't if we can just, like, paint a picture of what he looks like, isn't if we can just recount what he did and how he lived his life. But what satisfies that is if we keep his commandments and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people so i i don't know god i don't know jesus if i ever slip up well that's not what he says he just says that we know we have come to know him and i think there's an implied thing there about being known by him as well like if we truly know him then we are known by him well how does that happen if we keep his commandments so what's the benefit of knowing him well, I think that this type of relationship, this type of knowing is a relationship that we should view as like a mutual relationship. Like I mentioned, that knowing Jesus is the same as being known by him. Claiming him is the same as being claimed by him. Jesus even makes that clear in his teaching in the Gospels. So he knows you. And he doesn't let you stand there and sweat and wonder if he's going to show up when you stand before the judge. He's truly our advocate, and we can have confidence that he is our advocate not only because we believe in him, but because we keep his commandments. And again, when we, slip up, when we do slip up, what do we have from chapter 1? We have confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Then look at verse 4 again. It says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Learning of Jesus and knowing him is equivalent to following his commandments. Separating these ideas or thinking that Love and obedience just don't go together or that they aren't intermingled. Israel did not see how God <laughs> reveals his truth. I think we see them as going hand in hand. And it's the terms that he has set on this relationship. If I want to set my own terms of this relationship, if I want to say, no, I know him, you can't tell me I don't know him. And there's God saying, well, I'm telling you that you don't know him because you're not keeping his commandments. I say, no, 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 that's not how this works. I don't set the terms of this relationship with God. He sets those terms. Unless I want to say, well, okay, I, I actually do know him, but it's not the same advocate. I have a different advocate. Well, who do you know of that can stand in the place of Jesus for you? There's nobody. There's nobody that has proven himself to be the same righteous one. There's nobody that is from the Father that has this fellowship with the Father from the beginning, that can stand there with us. To try to separate these ideas of learning of Jesus, believing in him, knowing him, we put that over on this side, and then we put keeping commandments and obedience on this side. To try to act like those aren't connected, that God does not connect those, is really to try to set the terms of the relationship in a different way than God has laid out. And that would be nice, I guess, in a way, because who doesn't want to feel like they are the dominant ones in the relationship that can set the terms for it. It doesn't work with God. <laughs> it just doesn't play out like that. And if you really think about it, you don't really want that. 
Because that means that the relationship with God is determined by each individual person's regulations. So what I'm wanting God to do is mold himself, mold himself and his character to me. So not be the creator of all things, but just, well, hey, just, just be what I want you to be. And again, that's not how God presents himself. The third thing I want to look at is what we can know and say. So this, we can know we have the advocate because we keep his commandments. We follow his word. Now I want to focus on what we can know and say. So there's two things that he says we can know, and there's two things he says we can say. John's already kind of touched on the lies that we tell ourselves, like I mentioned in verses 6 through 10, and the effect that has on our relationship with God. But here he says in verses 3 and 5 that we know if we have come to know Jesus as our advocate, and we can know if we are in him, if we abide in him. Being in Christ is believing in him and following him. There is no separating those two ideas either. That doesn't imply that we must follow him perfectly, but our walk and being in him go hand in hand. We live a lie when we don't do that. We live a lie when we think that we can be in him and that we are following him without keeping his commandments. But we also cheapen the way that Jesus walked if we think we know him or are in him, but don't walk the way he did. If you look at verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if I say I can be in Christ, but I can walk a different way, then I'm really cheapening the walk that Christ, the the life that Christ lived. Because I'm saying there's another path to God. We don't want to cheapen Christ's life, his sacrifice, his obedience, or any of that. But then he says in verses 4 and 6 that we can say certain things. We can say, I know him. And we can say that I abide in him. How can we say that? Well, you look at verse four, like we read, he says that we can say that if we are keeping his commandments. Because if we say we, if we say that we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. And then he says that uh, if we say we abide in him, that we ought to walk the same way that he walked. Saying this can make us guilty of lying if we are not meeting the conditions that are set. And the condition is that we walk like Jesus did. <laughs> And we do all that we have from the Father, like He did. That we're obedient, that we are obedient to the nth degree. So we share the same purpose, so we ought to keep in step with Him. I think that what we're supposed to get from these first from these first six verses of chapter two is not only a feeling and a very real truth of of being obligated to keep God's word, being obligated to walk and keep in step with Christ. But I think we're supposed to walk away with this by and think that we are just so lucky that Christ has already laid the path for us. We're so lucky that Christ walked the path and made it clear to us how to walk. So when we, when we have the question of, well, what, what can I know? How can I know for sure that my salvation is secure? Or how can I claim and know that I am going to heaven or that I am in Christ? I think that each of us struggle with those ideas and, and having confidence in those things differently. But overall, our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in Christ because he's the one that walked the walk. Now we can know and we can have further confidence that we are in him by how we live. It's not just what we say. It's not just what we have claimed at one point, but it's how we live on a day-to-day basis. And again, when we do slip up, what do we have? We know we have him as our advocate. 
we would have no need of an advocate if from this day on all that mattered is that I never sinned again. Because I could view it as, well, God has washed that away and that's done away with. And even then, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that just doesn't cut it. But maybe I can rationalize that and say, I live perfectly from now on. It's all good. Again, that's not the terms that the judge has set. <laughs> that's not how he has painted it. This idea of Christ being our advocate came up a little bit when we were studying Job last year. And I never noticed it. We're not going to go there and read. But in Job 9, it makes it very clear that he's wanting someone to stand next to him as he pleads his case before God. Now, his case is a little bit of a difficult case to plead, right? I mean, he, was a, he seemed to be a good man, a righteous man. All these bad things have happened. But it come, becomes a little murky because he starts thinking like, this is unfair, God. You're so wise. You're so mighty. You're beyond man. Nobody can stand before you. Why are you saying this, Job? That would be my question if I was one of his friends. Why are you saying this if no one can stand before him? But what he says he wants is he wants a mediator. He needs somebody to stand there with him. They will come lay his hand on the both of them, almost like make peace, right? Have you, have you ever seen someone do that or had someone do that to you? Like you're, you're standing face to face and not to say that he's wanting to argue with God, but that almost seems like what he's wanting to do. And here comes someone and says, hold on, guys, hold on, you know? <laughs> just put, put their hands on your shoulders and just say, okay, let's see if we can work this out. It's almost like that's what he's wanting. I think that's exactly what we should want too. Not only because we understand that God has a certain disposition to sin, but actually God is wanting to rule in our favor or to, to wanting us to be absolved of all these things. I think that's what any judge wants, any good judge wants. He wants righteousness and truth to just be uh, declared and proclaimed and to be seen. That's what our God wants. But in order for us to have that, in order for us to be part of that, we need Christ. And I think it's a beautiful idea that what we have is we have the Son of God that was willing to come down, who was willing to not only obey Him in every way while He lived, but obey Him to the point of death. And then now He is there on high, and what He's just doing is waiting so that He can plead our case for us. So the question for us, though, is, am I doing what I need to do to have Jesus as my advocate? You know, I, I've, never, I've never had to worry about getting an attorney for anything. I hope I never do. But if I do, I can tell you that I'm going to try to find the best I can. But you kind of get what you pay for. <laughs> my guess is I won't be able to pay for that much. <laughs> so I'm not going to get the best one. You know, it's kind of a great thing that we don't have to worry about like bringing more to Christ and saying, I'm going to buy you as my advocate, as my attorney. What we have to do is we have to, we have to give it all up though. We have to, what he requires of us is take up our cross daily to follow him. What he requires of us is that we count this cost of claiming him as our advocate, of claiming him as our Christ. But if we do that, if we just believe in him, we take up our cross daily and we, we are following him. It seems like that's all he requires. And it, wouldn't it be great if the best lawyer in, in the whole nation or maybe just the best lawyer in town, he just says, hey, all you got to do is this and I'll be there for you. And the price that he sets doesn't seem to compare at all to what he should charge. He, should, he would have the ability to charge so much more, but he says, no, I want to be there for you, though. 
So now we don't have to look back. We don't have a clock in here. But we don't have to look back and just be thinking about, like, is he going to show up? Is he going to show up? Like, we can have confidence. But if we just do exactly what Jesus has said, we've met the terms of him being our advocate, our mediator between us and God, so we can have confidence in our salvation. Not just that our sins have been taken care of, but we can stand before God, not because we are just and righteous, but because the one that we have next to us is the righteous one. And he is just. So the, the challenge for us, though, is let's be in step with Christ. Let's follow him. Prove that we, are know, that we know him and following him. Prove that we are known by him. Let's never waver in our faith and confidence in the one that will stand next to us one day and plead our case. And hopefully when we say that we know him, he says, I know you too. If you are here and you have sins, you need to make those right. You need to ask for prayers. You need to confess sins. Uh, that's what we're here to do is to help you with that. If we need to study together and we need to work through some things, we want to do that as well. If you're here and you are not yet in Christ, you have not followed him and you've not started that journey, we want to help you with that as well. Um, if you do need something at this time, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And it's just a song that will help us to think about our lives as we uh, are before God. And if you need something, let one of us know. Or after the song, if you need some prayers, let us know as well. Let us know as we stand and as we sing.